Father, I ask for your strength today, not for, uh, not for my sake, not for my benefit, Lord, but so that your message would go out clearly, so that your word would be understood, so that we would be able to clearly see your work in the life of Abraham, Father, and how, how your plan of redemption was from the beginning, from before time began, Father, how how everything points us to the cross and our need for a Savior. Father, I pray this in your name. Amen. So last week we looked at the life of Abraham in chapters 12 through 15 in Genesis. And we saw Abraham's calling by God to go to the promised land and, and Abraham's obedience in doing so. We saw that Abraham was promised to be made into a great nation and he was promised to be made a great name. And what followed after that initial promise was a bit of a roller coaster ride in the life of Abraham. See, after he went to the land of Canaan, he quickly discovered that there was a famine there. And he, he left for Egypt, and he essentially gave up the promise that he had just been given. He gave up the promise of the land. He gave up the promise of his wife. Uh, he gave up his wife, rather, and he gave up the promise of being made into a nation by giving up his wife. And he, he left God's promises for the promise of an easier life in Egypt. Egypt, of course, being the Old Testament uh, reality for an alternate savior. And God came in and redeemed that situation, and Abraham ended up back in Canaan with his wife and extra possessions. So God worked that to his good. But next we saw that Abraham dealt with Lot, saw how he dealt with Lot in going their separate ways. And we saw the, the contrast between Abraham, who was focused at that time on, on living for God and God's promises, and while Lot was living by sight rather than by faith. And, and because of living by sight, Lot ended up being captured. But Abraham, rescuing Lot, again affirms his commitment to live for God's promises when he is offered extreme prosperity by the king of Sodom. And he turns it down in chapter 14, verses 22 and 23, saying, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And then in chapter, chapter 15, we saw that Abraham expresses to God the struggle he's having in understanding how God is going to bless him with a child after so much time has passed. And God responded to Abraham by promising that he will have a child and that it would be a son. And God gave Abraham more details about the promise to be made into a great nation. And, and right after that, Abraham asked God for more details about the land which was promised to his descendants. And God gave him those details and gave Abraham a covenant as well. See, last week what we saw was how, in the end, Abraham's life pointed us to Christ in so many ways. And ultimately we saw how the covenant pointed us forward to the new covenant, which Jesus would establish thousands of years later. The covenant which is entirely dependent on his work, which ultimately leads us to understand that we can't earn our salvation or God's favor. We did absolutely nothing to earn our salvation. And as the song goes, Jesus paid it all. And as I stated last week, the goal of this overview of the life of Abraham is twofold. So I want you to be encouraged, just as I have, that Abraham, although he is a man of faith, he isn't a perfect man, and we can follow in his footsteps as he followed God. And I think it's a great blessing to be able to see the role of progressive sanctification played out in his life, as he was a righteous man who ended up in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. But again, I, I also want you guys to see how Abraham points us to Christ in so many ways and how God's great plan of redemption 
was not something that he came up with on the fly, reacting to human decision, but rather it was something that was put into place from before time began, and it's something that we can and should cling to because we can trust God. Now, if you would open with me, we'll uh, begin in Genesis chapter 16 today. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And we saw that she had conceived. She looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now last week, again, we left off in chapter 15 with the covenant between God and Abram. And this week, we begin with the very next chapter, which records an event that makes it seem as if the covenant never had even taken place. Right? Following God's promises in the previous chapters, at the age of 55, now we see that Abram and Sarai are struggling to comprehend how God is going to deliver on his promise to give them a son. And they appear to be questioning if God even has that ability as well. Sarai said, hey, God hasn't allowed, you know, God not just hasn't allowed me, but uh, verse 2, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She doesn't believe his promise. And Abram goes along with exactly what she's saying. So ultimately what we see here is that Sarai is impatient and unbelieving, and she persuades Abram to sleep with Hagar and to obtain a son in that way. Now, Abram was open to Sarai's plan to get a son for, uh, could be multiple reasons, but I want to say that he was open to Sarai's plan to get a son because he wanted to see God's promises fulfilled. What we've seen from Abraham in the past is that he's asking for more details. He wants to know what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, because he longs to see this happen. He longs to see it come to fruition. Now, in Abraham's day, the day in which he lived, it was a very acceptable practice as well to take a concubine. So it's not as if it was out of place for his wife to offer this up and him being just a a crazy man of the day. No, he was just kind of going along with the culture there. I mean, it was so normal, in fact, that uh, documents from the ancient Near East show that this was a regular custom in some societies and, and some premarital agreements actually stipulated that a barren wife was to provide her husband with offspring in this way. It's interesting how that works out. But if you look at verses 15 and 16 here, what we ultimately see is that Abram and Sarai are given a son by Hagar when Abram is 86. It says, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Now if you turn to me with, with me to chapter 17, starting in verse 4. You get to see another part of Abram's life here. Starting in verse 4 says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. 
I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with all your money, with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. See, God again comes to Abraham, and once again he renews the promise to make Abram into a great nation. This time he added the detail that kings will come from Abraham's line of offspring. So God comes and reiterates the covenant, but he also renames both Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. Now when a covenant was made in the ancient world, it was common for for the great king to give a new name to the lesser king to demonstrate control and power. Now God in this case was changing the most personal thing about Abram and Sarai. From the time he changed their names onward, every time their names were spoken, they would be reminded that they belonged to God. They would be reminded of the promise. They would be reminded that nations and kings would come from them. Every time their names were said, every time Abraham or Sarah was said, they would be reminded of God and the role he played in their lives, that he is God over all, that he is in control. And while their names would be, the names they were given would be the reminder of the covenant God had given them, the sign of circumcision was instituted as well to be a reminder to all their descendants. John Walvard says, Circumcision would remind Abraham and his descendants of the everlasting covenant. By this symbol, God impressed them with the impurity of nature and with dependence on God for the production of all life. They would recognize and remember, A, that native impurity must be laid aside, especially in marriage, and that, B, human nature is unable to generate the promised seed. Any Israelite who refused to be cut physically in this way would be cut off or separated from his people because of disobedience to God's command. And he goes on to say, Elsewhere, Scripture refers to circumcision as a symbol of separation, purity, and a loyalty to the covenant. Moses said that God would circumcise the hearts of his people so that they might be devoted to him. And Paul wrote that the circumcision of the heart evidences salvation and fellowship with God. One must turn in confidence to God and his promises, laying aside natural strength. See, God changed Abram and Sarai's names and established the covenant of circumcision circumcision, to set his people apart and remind them of who their God is and who is in control. Look with me to uh, chapter 17, verses 16 through 21. Verse 16. 
I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. See, after, after changing Sarah's name, God stated that nations would come from Sarah. Right? And while looking at this, it seems like, well, yeah, that's kind of what God's been saying all along. Abraham and Sarah didn't understand that. See, at this point, Abraham believed that Ishmael would be the son that God would use to bring those nations from Abraham's descendants. But now God's saying that, no, the child of the promise is Isaac. It's going to come through a son which Sarah will give birth to. And Abraham is struggling here. He can't believe what he's hearing. And he he questions God. He even takes it so far as to say to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And what Abraham is essentially saying is, God, look, I'm, I'm 100 years old. There's no way I'm going to have a kid with Sarah. Look, I've done you a favor. I made your job easy. I had a son with Hagar. So surely you don't intend on going to all this trouble, attempting to do something which you probably can't when I have a perfectly good son sitting right here before you. But God replies, and he doesn't reply in anger or anything. He just goes, you know what? Sarah's going to have a son. He just says, Sarah will give birth to a son. And we'll see what comes next here. Verse 22, chapter 17. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. So, in the end, we see that while Abraham is still struggling to believe that Sarah is going to give birth to a son, we see that he's still obedient. He still follows through with the sign of the covenant and circumcision. Now, earlier we saw that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now we're seeing that Abraham's faith is true because it is accompanied by obedience. Here, Abraham is kind of reflecting to us what we see in the New Testament between James and Paul. So Paul shows us that salvation is through faith alone and James shows us that true faith works. We're seeing both of those coming together right now in the life of Abraham. And more evidence to back up that this is true faith is the fact that Abraham as well as the men in his household, aren't eight days old when they're circumcised, right? They're going to feel this. See, even with modern medical procedures and medicine available, I mean, put yourself in that situation right now. I don't think you're going to see too many uncircumcised guys lining up, volunteering to have this procedure done to them. But here, thousands of years ago, without any modern medicine, we see that Abraham willingly endures the pain to be faithful and obedient to God. And not only does he willingly endure it, he doesn't sit there thinking about it. 
Scripture here tells us that Abraham, that very day, the same day it happened, it says that a couple times that he went and did this. He didn't wait. He was obedient right at, this, right at that moment. Turn to, to chapter 18, verses 10 through 15 with me. Verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. See, later on, God appears to Abraham again, and, and this time he reiterates his promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son, and he gives details about the date now as well. See, in a year's time, when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90, Sarah will give birth to a child. And Sarah responded just like Abraham did before and didn't believe that God would be able to give them a son, but soon we will see that both Abraham and Sarah are wrong. Now, at this point in Abraham's life, if we take an overview of who Abraham is and, and what he's become, we see that Abraham is an obedient man, right? Immediately obedient when God gives him a command, trusting that God will provide for him and his descendants for their physical needs and blessing them beyond needs. But at the same time, he's still a man who doesn't believe that God can deliver on his promise of a miracle, right? He says, okay, yeah, this land, I can see how maybe that would come to my descendants later on. Give me some dates on that. But he's struggling to see how a 90-year-old woman's going to give birth to a child. He doesn't believe God can perform miracles. So let's turn to chapter 20. We're going to read one, uh, verses 1 and 2 and then 10 through 13. Chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. Sound familiar? And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Jump down to verse 10. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. So right at the time we think that Abraham is this strictly obedient man, trusting in God's provision, he goes and repeats the same stupid sin he committed back in chapter 12. And just as we saw back in chapter 12, Abraham again is essentially willingly giving up his wife, through whom God promised the nations. He's giving up the land which was promised to his descendants, and he was giving up salvation from God for salvation from a human king. And once again, praise God, we see that he intervenes. And this time we get a more detailed account of of God appearing to Abimelech in a dream and informing him of Abraham's sin. And we also get a more detailed account of what is going through Abraham's head when this situation comes up. See, Abraham says that he cares essentially about the safety of his life more than what he's given up. And then he tries to excuse what he did by saying, well, she is my half-sister, so I wasn't really lying. So, 
you know, he's trying to excuse the sin there, but again, thankfully God steps in and rescues the situation. He continues to give Abraham the safety that Abraham thought he had gained by lying. He gives Abraham his wife back, which essentially returns the blessings of the promise to Abraham as well. He blesses Abraham with many gifts coming out of this situation. So surely now, surely now Abraham will know and will have learned that God is in control, that he can trust God in all situations, right? Well, we'll find out. Turn with me to chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Isaac bore him, whom Isaac bore, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So finally, finally, after all these chapters, we reach the point of so much conflict in Abraham's life. See, ever since he was promised in chapter 12 to be made into nations, he struggled to believe and understand how God would perform this miracle. And if he was struggling at the age of 75, I'm not sure how to describe where Abraham is at when he's 99 without a child and what you would call that. However, again, thankfully, God is much bigger than man's thoughts or ideas and bigger than Abraham's thoughts or ideas. And what we see is that after waiting for 25 years, God has delivered on his promise and God has performed a miracle. Surely Abraham now believes in the miraculous powers of God to go beyond human restrictions and to deliver miracles. And Abraham, because of his faith here, Remembering the covenant, in obedience to God, he circumcises Isaac on the eighth day. And from an author's point of view, this would often be the pinnacle in the life of a character, right? But God wasn't finished with Abraham yet, and he had even greater plans for Abraham and Isaac. But before we can get to that, we, we need to see another difficult time here for Abraham. Turn to uh, Genesis 21, 8-14, through 14, starting in verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, speaking of Isaac. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased. Because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So Isaac was born, and Abraham and Sarah were were ecstatic to have a son of their own. And Abraham was happy because both Isaac and Ishmael would receive blessings, right? See, Isaac was to be the beginning of the offspring that would turn all of Abraham and Sarah's descendants into many nations, into nations that kings would come from. And back in Genesis 17.20, God promised to bless Ishmael as well. said, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. 
He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. And so while at this point in time, in Abraham's life, he probably would have been the happiest he's ever been, seeing the, the beginning of the fulfillment of the promises, at the same time, Abraham is struggling here with some family issues. We see that Sarah is totally and utterly done dealing with Hagar and Ishmael and, and tells Abraham that he needs to throw out Hagar and Ishmael. See, the son whom Abraham had grown to love over the last 13 years was a big problem in his marital life. Now, Abraham was extremely displeased to hear, to hear about this issue, but God told Abraham to do whatever Sarah asked because it wasn't Ishmael who was the child of promise, but it was Isaac. And it was through Isaac that all the blessings would be delivered. So God reiterates his promise to bless Ishmael. And the next thing we see is that Abraham sends Hagar and Ishmael away. Now certainly all along it seems that Sarah has had a dislike for them, for Hagar and Ishmael it is, but Abraham sends his 13-year-old son away and possibly to never see him again. Now this is a huge test of faith that no one tends to remember in Abraham's life. Everybody tends to remember, okay, the birth of Isaac and then the sacrifice of Isaac, right? But nobody remembers this point. See, this, this would not only be difficult to send his son away because it's, you know, your 13-year-old kid who you've grown to, to love and your only kid up until, you know, just recently. But at the same time, infant mortality rates were extremely high back then. And so essentially Ishmael was now like a backup plan for if something happened to Isaac, if Isaac were to die, here's a backup plan. It's a safety net for him. And he would have wanted Israel to say is just, just an insurance policy at the very least. But here's where we really begin to see Abraham grow and understand that he can trust God to fulfill his promises. See, in the past when difficult situations arose, Abraham often took matters into his own hands. But now after seeing God fulfill the promise for a son and perform that miracle, and after beginning to see the promise of being made into nations starting to come to fruition, Abraham chooses to trust God. He chooses to trust that Ishmael as well will be made into a nation as God promised. And he trusts that because of that, that Ishmael will be safe and he will be well taken care of. And after being told to send his first son away and go essentially all in on Isaac, Abraham comes to another even more difficult situation. Turn with me to Genesis 22. We're going to read uh, 1 through 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and we will worship and we will come back again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the, wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, 
God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns, by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. See, later on in life, as Isaac is grown up, we get to a point where he's old enough to carry a conversation and take on a long journey, and, and Abraham was told by God at this point to go and to offer his son as a sacrifice. And we're told that this is a test by God. And now as, as difficult as it would be to sacrifice any child, I mean, let's really look at this situation here. See, Abraham and, and Sarah struggled again, remember, their entire lives with not being able to have children. And the importance of children is defined by the book, The New Manners and Customs of Bible Times by Ralph Gower. It says, speaking of children, he says, because parents believed that they lived on in their children, children were looked on as a great blessing. The more children a person could have, the better it was. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And if a woman could not have children, it was therefore seen as a curse from God, because it was good as extinction. Rachel told Jacob that if she had no children, she would die. Hannah believed her childlessness was God's punishment. And Elizabeth knew the reproachful looks she received from people because they believed she had done something to upset God. So when John was born, she, she knew that the Lord had taken away her disgrace. A cause for joy, though all babies were, boys were the real blessing. Men stayed with the family and so increased its size and wealth with wives and more children, while girls, on the other hand, were valuable for the work that they could do while they were young and for the bride price that would be paid as a form of compensation when they moved to another family. But children weren't just important to the culture in that day. I mean, they were a cultural idol. So for people like Abraham and Sarah, who couldn't have them, this would be their biggest idol. So think of it like this. Let's, I'm going to estimate that for at least 45 years before the promise, guesstimating because the people, you remember back in chapter 11, uh, their relatives were listed as having kids around the age of 30. So at 75, they were given the promise. So we'll say uh, they struggled with not being able to have kids for about 45 years before the promise. And then, uh, you know, and that's, that's a long time to deal with the, the, the struggle of an idol. Uh, the pressure and the shame from friends and family and the culture around, and it would have made it so difficult. But when Abraham was 75, 
I mean, think about this. The biggest idol in his life, the thing that he longed for the most, was a child. And God, through the promise, gave hope of fulfilling his biggest idol. And certainly, as I've stated previously, Abraham would have expected that child to come to them pretty quickly after the promise. You know, surely not more than a few years after the promise. And this is revealed when he has a child with Hagar, his impatience right there. But years later, again, God is still promising to give them a child by Sarah. And 25 years after the promise, at the age of 100, God finally gives them Isaac. Now, waiting 45 years at least before the promise and 25 years after is a total of 70 years of waiting. That's a long time to hope for something, only to have it taken away from you. Again, they tried to fulfill the promise themselves through Hagar, and and Abraham was forced to send Ishmael away. And now that he has Isaac for likely about the same amount of time that he had Ishmael, Isaac was likely a teenager at this point in time, God again is saying that he's going to take Isaac away. Not only will he take Isaac away, but then Abraham is left again wondering, where in the world are these nations going to come from? You promised nations from my offspring. Now I have no offspring. Where is this going to come from? So surely we would expect chapter 22 to start out with Abraham expressing his struggle to God again. But instead what we see is obedience. See, God told Abraham to take Isaac, to offer him as a sacrifice. And, and what happened? It says Abraham got up in the morning, got up early in the morning and began that journey. In the last chapter, we see God tell Abraham to give up Ishmael because the promise will be fulfilled through Isaac. And Abraham was obedient in that and trusted God. But now we see that God's asking Abraham to give up Isaac as well. And it would certainly be interesting to know what Abraham's thoughts are on that three-day journey he takes to make, the son, to make his son a sacrifice. But while we can't know the thoughts of Abraham, what we can see is Abraham's response to the challenge God gave him. So we know from verse 3 that Abraham started early the next day, indicating that, again, he wanted to obey God immediately. We know from verse 4 that it took three days to get to the place where the sacrifice was to be offered. And Abraham didn't get cold feet. He didn't turn around, but he continued in obedience to God. We know that Abraham trusted that God would somehow deliver on his promise to give great nations and kings through Isaac, because it was promised specifically through Isaac. Now, whether Abraham believed that God was going to stop him at some point, as happened, or whether he believed that God was going to raise Isaac from the dead and perform another miracle, it doesn't matter. We know that Abraham believed that God would still continue the promise through Isaac. Abraham continued in obedience to the point that he he built the altar, he laid Isaac on the altar, he bound Isaac to the altar, and he had the knife raised to kill Isaac before God stopped him. And God stopped Abraham and provided a ram for a sacrifice rather than Isaac. And God reiterated his promises to Abraham once again, as we've seen many times. So Abraham's life doesn't stop here. There's another chapter talking about him, but this is where we're going to stop. What we see is that Abraham lived a life of faith and obedience as God declared, and God declared him righteous. And what we've seen all along is that Abraham has lived the life of a normal believer, right? Trusting God at times and other times taking his life into his own hands and applying his own wisdom to situations rather than trusting God. And while we've seen all these ups and downs, we've been able to see him grow over time. We've been able to, to, to be a, a witness, or he's been able to be a witness to God's work. And we've been able to see Abraham's progressive sanctification or the process of becoming more like Christ every day 
and learning to trust God more and more every day. And when we reach the end of his life, we can see that Abraham has given up relying on himself. And he trusts even his most cherished possessions to God's care. Even the things that are idols in his life that most of us would not be willing to give up. He is trusted to God's care. And as I said before, I hope that being able to look at the life of Abraham has been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. Because even a renowned Old Testament saint that we have as an example to lead us to God isn't anywhere near perfect. So I want to encourage you with, in your walk with a passage from a book entitled, Am I Really a Christian? which is put out by Nine Marks. And I know I've shared this before, but again, when it comes to progressive sanctification, I think this really hits the point. Now, Mike McKinley in this book says, So the genuineness of our faith is marked out less by our current spiritual maturity and more by the overall pattern of our lives. At any one moment, you may feel bogged down in sin, weary and struggling to grow. Perhaps you've been losing your temper with your kids lately, or you've had a disrespectful attitude towards your boss. You know it's wrong, but it seems like you can't get a grip in this area of your life. Does that mean you're not a Christian? Not necessarily. To get a good read on your spiritual condition, look at the big picture. Have you seen any growth in your life in these areas? Even if you're disappointed in yourself right now, can you see ways in which you have changed and matured in the past five years? I once heard a very helpful illustration of what the Christian life should look like from counseling professor David Pallison. He said that the pattern of Christian life and growth is like a yo-yo. Up and down, up and down. Now that's pretty depressing, but also pretty true. One day I feel as if I have sin beat, and the next day I feel as if I'm back at the beginning, back at square one. But there is more, Pallison said. The pattern of Christian life and growth may be like a yo-yo, but it's a yo-yo in the hands of someone walking up a flight of stairs. And that's a much more encouraging image. In the day-to-day, we are acutely aware of the yo-yo feeling. The ups and downs of the battle against sin. But we miss the larger picture of growth and maturity that God is graciously working in us. He is carrying us up the stairs. Even our low points now are higher than our high points used to be. So you might struggle with bursts of anger at your children. But if you are a Christian, over time, you and your friends will see that you are gradually becoming more loving. That your outbursts of anger are rarer, less violent, shorter in duration, and that you are quicker to repent and seek reconciliation. Ultimately, what we see from Abraham is that he starts out. And as soon as he sees a famine in the land that God led him to, he gives up and seeks for an alternate savior. He goes to Egypt, gives up the promise and his wife for what he thinks is safety. 25 years later, we see that Abraham has grown tremendously and is following God blindly, even when things don't make sense to him. Even when he has to give up something that God had promised, even if he doesn't understand how God's going to work everything out. Now look back over the past five years of your life and rejoice in the growth that God is producing in you. But if, if there hasn't been growth, then maybe it's time to turn to Christ. And just like we saw last week, Abraham continues to point us to Christ in his life, in, in both similarities and differences to Christ. So just to name a, a few right now, uh, in Genesis 16, we see that Abraham followed Sarah's advice to take a shortcut to having a kid rather than waiting on God's timing. Abraham followed Sarah's advice and was disobedient, and we see a contrast to that in Christ. See, in Matthew 4, we see that Satan was, offered, was offering Jesus shortcuts in the wilderness. Ian Duguid explains it like this. He says, 
Why don't you, this is uh, his take on what, how Satan is, what Satan's saying to Jesus in the wilderness, okay? Why don't you make these stones into bread? Otherwise, you may die of hunger, and that would hardly forward God's plan. Throw yourself down from the temple, from the top of the temple, showing yourself to be one who comes gloriously on the clouds. Otherwise, the people may despise the humble manner of your coming to earth and thus miss out on the blessing you came to bring. You're going to appear that way someday, so why not now? Take possession of the world's throne now. Otherwise, you may end up with nothing but a cross. I mean, isn't the crown yours by right anyway? See, Satan's proposals seem also sensible. They seem to achieve God's purposes by a shortcut. But thankfully, Jesus waited for God's timing and was patient. And in Genesis 20, we see that Abraham doubted God's ability to protect him. So he took matters into his own hands rather than to be obedient to God. But Jesus trusted God so much and he was so faithful and obedient to God that he was obedient to the point of suffering on a cross. While Abraham doubted God's ability to protect him, was thus disobedient to God, at the same time he began to doubt God's goodness. Again, Ian Duguid's comments on this are, Abraham made his divine call to go to the promised land sound like nothing more than the aimless wandering of a refugee. Instead of witnessing to Abimelech about God's enduring faithfulness to him over the past 25 years, he, ta- he talked like one pagan to another. Instead of speaking of God's goodness to him, in spite of his own failures, he talked as if his future lay in the hands of blind fate. In his heart, he was starting to doubt that God was really good. But arguably, the most important way that Abraham points us to Christ is in chapter 22. See, in Genesis 22, we see that Abraham was willing to give up his only son as a sacrifice to God. In the New Testament, we see God sends his son to earth to die on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity. In Genesis 22, we are introduced to substitutionary atonement when Isaac is taken off that altar and the ram is sacrificed instead. The ram took the place of Isaac under the knife, and Jesus, the Lamb of God, took away the sins of the world by going under the sword of God's wrath in our place. In Genesis 22 as well, in the end we see that Abraham's faith led to obedience and that obedience led to a renewal of the promise from God. It is because Abraham was willing to put the promise on the line and risk losing it all that the promise was renewed. In Matthew 16:25, Jesus says, "Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it." Abraham was willing to lose everything. And as Jesus stated thousands of years later, it was that willingness to lose it that allowed him to find it. Now, while earlier I suggested that you look over the past five years of your life to see the growth and to be encouraged by it, now I would challenge you to ask yourself the question, if God asked me to give up anything at all, any particular thing in my life, would I be able to? If God asked you to give up your job, would you? If God asked you to to give up your favorite hobby, would you? If God asked you to give up your car, would you? Now, while these are these are difficult questions to answer, and you don't, you know, in all likelihood, we don't really know what our answer is going to be until we're presented with that situation. A good way to to test ourselves and know how we would respond to these questions is to look at how you're doing your day to day life with what you're giving up. You know, just something simple. If a coworker doesn't have money for lunch today and you can help them, do you? Or do you save that money? Do you hold it back for something that you're wanting? I mean, there's many questions, just simple questions like that 
So many different circumstances that come up in our day-to-day lives that will allow you to see where you would be if that would ever arise, if God ever asked you to give up your job. Are you obedient in the small things? Because if you are, likely you'll be obedient in the bigger things. Last week we looked at the importance of spending time in the Word and spending time in prayer. We saw as well that we were saved by God and and not by anything that we do. And this week, I want you to look at the words of Jesus from Matthew sixteen twenty-five, and ask yourself, are you giving until it hurts? Are you giving of yourself physically, emotionally, spiritually? Are you giving of your resources? The reality is we're called to, to lose our life for Christ's sake. And we need to be obedient in that just as Abraham was. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for the, the example that Abraham is to us. In so many ways, he's, uh, he's so like us, Father. And, and I can only pray that one day we will turn out to be as obedient as Abraham does, as, as he was. Father, I pray that as we go throughout our week, that, that you would challenge us with different circumstances and situations Father, that, that stretch us, that, are, that require something of us, that aren't easy. Father, that we can be tested to know and uh, to know if we will be obedient in the big things, Father, by being obedient in small ways. Father, I thank you for, for Abraham and, and how he points us to Christ so constantly. Father, it truly is all you. You have paid it all. You, you, you started this from before time began. You brought it through no matter what we've tried to do to, to mess up your plans. Father, and, and you have paid the price. Father, we thank you for that today. We just pray that we would, as you have sacrificed for us, that we would sacrifice for you as well. Father, that we would live for you, that you would be the one we look to, that there wouldn't be idols we place above you, Father, but that you would be our one joy, our one hope, our one source of strength. Father, change us to be more like that today. Pray all this in your name. Amen.